Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And in this episode we have Red Hat taking steps to let's say protect the source code of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, something that goes directly against open source principles. We have the first beta for Linux Mint 21.2 with an enormous amount of improvements and we have a big Plasma 6 progress report and a tentative non-official release date. So, as always, all the links I use to make this show are in the show notes and all the links to support the show are in the show notes as well if you want to keep it going. So, now let's dive into it. So, first, uh, there's something that will probably, like, confirm a bunch of suspicions that people might already have about Red Hat since they were bought by IBM. Uh, which is they're focusing more on profit than on the initial values of open source and openness. Because they've decided that the only publicly accessible repo by everyone for free for the source code of what they built will be the repo for CentOS Stream, which is a version of CentOS that people did not really like. Uh, It was not judged a suitable solution compared to the previous way CentOS worked. Uh, CentOS was more stable, more tested, and they decided to make CentOS Stream a more downstream version. And so it's not as stable, it's not as good. And it launched a bunch of other distributions, like Rocky Linux or Alma Linux, that are one-to-one binary compatible with Red Hat Enterprise Linux and are based on Red Hat Enterprise Linux's source code. And these distributions probably ended up eating CentOS's cake, but they probably also ended up eating some Red Hat Enterprise Linux cake, uh, because they are free of charge, you don't have to pay any support for anything. So probably Red Hat thought that, yeah, you know what, these things are starting to be a competitor, but they're using our work, so we don't like that. And so they decided that now, if you want to access the Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code, you will only be able to do so through the Red Hat customer portal, which, as I understand it, is limited to Red Hat customers. And you couldn't even just subscribe or become a customer and access that code and use it to build something else, because the license, the terms of service uh, for this customer portal and all the code distributed in it does not allow redistribution of software It does not allow its use to support and maintain a non-Red Hat product. So basically, you can't pay for a Red Hat subscription or become a customer and use that to grab all the source, all the packages, and rebuild another distro. So this means that it's going to get more difficult for Alma Linux or Rocky Linux to keep building a distribution that is fully one-to-one binary compatible with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Now, Alma Linux and Rocky Linux both came out and said that it won't affect them all that much because they already cloned their sources from snapshots of the CentOS repos and other sources. But it's going to make it more difficult because, well, they're going to have to do extra work to make sure that what they ship matches Red Hat Enterprise Linux entirely. And this is not a great move. It's not illegal, because the GPL does not prevent you from only giving access to your source code to paying customers. Uh, There's no obligation of making your product or your source code entirely free of charge. The only thing that the GPL mandates 
is that if someone actually gets your product, they need to get a copy of the source code and they need to be able to modify, tweak that source code. But the GPL doesn't prevent your customer portal from limiting what you're allowed to do with the code that you download. Although this might be a bit more touchy because technically, if your code is licensed under the GPL, people have a right to redistribute it if they made modifications to it. And it looks like the terms of service of the Red Hat customer portal does not allow that, at least for commercial users. So it's not in the spirit of open source at all. It might not be illegal, it might not violate the license, but it's definitely not open source friendly. Uh, it would be like Mozilla Firefox saying, you know what, uh, LibreWolf and Tor Browser and Mulva, they're all based on our code and they're eating the little market share we have. So now to get access to the Mozilla Firefox source code, you're going to have to pay a monthly fee. It would not be illegal, but it would still be pretty harmful for the open source community and pretty harmful for Firefox itself. Now, it's a weird move from Red Hat because basically they messed up with CentOS string. They decided to have basically three layers for their distributions. So we've got Fedora, which is the more bleeding edge version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, underneath that, in a little bit more stable uh, distribution, you've got CentOS stream. And then underneath that, you've got Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which is the rock solid deployment for super stable needs, uh, not for like super modern desktop computers. It's for workstations and servers that need absolute stability and support. And so they may stop with CentOS Stream. They offered a product that did not fill the niche that CentOS, the regular CentOS, filled before. And yeah, instead of recognizing that and saying, you know what, we understand it, like the rise of Alma Linux and Rocky Linux show that people don't want CentOS Stream or something like that, even if it helps us in our development process to have that intermediary version, people don't want to use it. So we're going to go back to another model or introduce something else that's better for people. No, they just decided, well, you know what, uh, we're not going to allow competitors to just use our source code, so we're going to block access to it. It's a weird move. Uh, instead of fixing the problem, they just created a new one. And if you compound that uh, with the recent layoffs, although the company did make profits uh, last year, they, they laid off a few people uh, because IBM laid off a bunch of people. And since Red Hat is part of IBM, they were also affected by some layoffs. So you add this to this the closing of the source code, the restriction of access to the source code, and you get the image of Red Hat, which is not a open source company first. It's a company first, and it's using open source second. And with these kind of behaviors, they're starting to inch closer to what a company like Google might do, or, or what a company like Microsoft might do. They, they're starting to use open source for their own benefit, but not really, but they're trying to limit their contribution back to the community. And this is not the spirit of open source. So it's really bad news. It really sucks. Uh, and I hope it bites them uh, back in the behind uh, in exchange because, yeah, it's just not good to act like this when you're one of the main open source companies out there. I think it's going to give a lot more credit to companies like OpenSUSE, like SUSE, for example, which don't do this kind of stuff. Now, our second topic will be about Linux Mint 21.2. And the beta is finally out uh, for this new release uh, in its Cinnamon, in its XFCE, and in its Mate variants, as usual. 
There's no Linux Mint Debian edition 21.2 yet. Generally, uh, it follows the main release of the main editions based on Ubuntu. It follows that by a few weeks or a few months. So no LMDE just yet. Uh, the feature list for 21.2 is pretty long. Uh, first, you've got a better login screen that now supports multiple keyboard layouts, which you can actually switch directly from the login screen. So if you configured your installation in English and then moved your user back to French, you're not stuck on having to type your password with an English keyboard layout, for example. Uh, you also get tap-to-click support on touchpads, which is a godsend because who disables that, really? And you also get a configurable layout for the on-screen keyboard, which is going to be useful uh, for people who need to use that or for people on touchscreens. Now, Mint's software manager uh, now includes flat packs in the featured apps, and it got a UI refresh uh, with the search field being moved in a header bar instead of having a regular title bar, toolbar combo. Uh, they now have that featured apps category on the top of the main page, and they have banners to showcase certain apps. And the apps categories are actually at the bottom of the page, which kind of makes sense because generally either you search by app name or you click on something featured because that's actually what you want. But the categories are more for general browsing and discovery, not specifically for downloading and installing an app quickly. So you want the features that let you install quickly first. And they also revamped the scoring system. Before you used to see those little black stars uh, that, that there were five stars and they were more or less filled depending on the notation of the app. And so now there's just one star and the score written uh, next to it, which uses less space and is just less cluttered. Uh, their Pix image viewer and li photo library manager was also rebased on a new version of Gthumb, which is the base program that they use uh, to create this, they add a set of patches to better integrate it with Cinnamon, but at its core, it's the Gthumb image viewer. And so they use the latest version. It moves to a header bar, so this will maybe annoy a few Linux Mint users, which prefer the menu bar and toolbar combo, but it's also better laid out and less confusing to use for most people. It also has way better performance. It supports more file formats like AVIF or HEIF, and it also has better zoom controls to zoom in and out of your pictures. It has bigger thumbnail options. If you want to display your pictures bigger in the grid, you can. It has a color picker to, well, pick colors directly from the app and a lot more. And they, of course, applied their set of patches back onto the app again. Now, in terms of visual changes, uh, the first one is styles, which just lets you change the theme of the desktop faster. So you just select a style like Mint Y or Mint X or Advita, and it will change the theme of all the elements of your desktop at once. Each style has access to a mixed mode where some apps are light, some apps are dark, depending on which app it is. You have access to a dark mode, which is now the dark mode preference uh, implemented through the XDG desktop portals, which means that when you select this dark mode, all the other apps you use that support dark mode preference will also switch to it, like Flatpak applications, LibAdvita applications, some KDE apps. They will all be turned dark automatically if the app developer support that feature. And you also get the choice for accent colors uh, for the styles that support it. For example, Advita doesn't support it, but the Mint Y and Mint X, and I think Mint L for legacy, uh, also support accent colors. Once you picked these accent colors, they will now apply to your folder icons. They won't be that 
Windows Manila color anymore with a colored stripe uh, that denotes your accent color. They will just use your accent color in full. Uh, all the tooltips when you hover over buttons will use that accent color and notifications will in the end not use the accent color entirely. The whole body of the notification will still be either dark or light, but there's going to be a colored strip on top of it to remind you of your accent color as well. Uh, if you want to still customize the look and feel individually, for example, having a title bar theme different than the main application theme, you still can. There is an advanced settings button that lets you change each element individually. So you could return to the uh, manila colored folders if you prefer. Uh, instead, for example, if your accent color is hot pink and you don't want all your folders to be hot pink, you can change them to another color if you want. In terms of legibility, they also moved to monochrome, uh, not monochrome icons, symbolic icons. Uh, they used monochrome icons previously, but this came with legibility problems. They had to maintain two sets of icons, one for dark mode, one for light mode. So they moved to symbolic icons, which are better. Apps that don't support these symbolic icons will use the default Advaita icon theme, which will not look good with the rest of the main desktop. So they app developers will probably want to implement support for symbolic icons sooner rather than later. And that's about it. Oh no, there's also the gestures. Uh, they added touchpad gestures for touchscreens, touchpads, and tablets. These gestures are very, very configurable in the settings. You can change each swipe up, down, left, or right for four fingers or three fingers. Uh, they can interact with your windows, interact with your virtual desktops. They can run a command. They can tile, minimize, maximize. There's a long list of things you can do, including a custom command, which is cool. You can also configure pinch, uh, pinch with two fingers, three fingers, or four fingers, uh, which can do the exact same list of gestures. They're disabled by default when you install Mint 21.2. Uh, you can enable them very simply from the settings panel, but they're not great. Uh, they're not one-to-one -one gestures. They are implemented in sort of a keyboard shortcut fashion. So you perform the action, and when you're done performing it, the animation happens all at once, and the command or the effect you selected happens all at once. Things do not move with your fingers, which is way worse than what you would get on GNOME, on KDE, on elementary OS, and or on Mac OS, or even in certain Windows gestures. So it's not the best implementation possible. Uh, there is a way on X11, which Linux Mint still uses, to have uh, super smooth one-to-one -one gestures. Elementary OS has that. Uh, you just have to implement the gesture manager. Uh, I don't know. I think it's TouchEgg in, uh, in Linux Mint. You have a way to implement TouchEgg directly at the window manager level. But this is way more complicated and way slower to develop. So they just went the easier route. So now they have gestures, it's good, but they're really not great gestures. So don't worry, I'll have a dedicated video about all these changes to showcase them, to give my opinions on them. Uh, it will release next week, so stay tuned for that uh, on my YouTube channel. The link is also in the show notes of this podcast. Now let's talk KDE and Plasma 6, because we got a few progress reports on things that will happen. So the current state of Plasma 6 is that it can compile easily and it's what they call livable, which means you can live with it. It's not perfect, it's still buggy, all the, all the features that are planned are not there yet, but it is usable. You can use it, it won't crash on you every day, it's not missing big parts or big components, it's livable. And so they encourage any app developer or Plasma developers 
to move to Plasma 6 right now so they can live in it, identify more bugs, fix stuff, and make sure that what they develop is not done in a vacuum, but is done in the greater context of Plasma 6. So the KDE team highlighted a series of steps and they're basically saying they are in between the making the code run well and starting to implement the features. Uh, they're in between those two steps. Uh, some of the planned features are already implemented, like for example, the revamp of the Plasma widget API, which is now complete, but not all the planned features are there yet. And there's still a big solid pass of testing and bug fixing left to do. So the next steps are first uh, to merge some code with Kirigami. If you don't know about it, Kirigami is the user interface framework that is like the most modern way of building KDE apps. It's, it's used by basically all the apps that you might see on Plasma Mobile and for example, apps like Calendar and, and a lot of others. It's, it's the new best way to develop KDE apps. And so they're gonna merge some code from the regular Plasma and KDE frameworks with some code from Kirigami to deduplicate things and basically to start using Kirigami everywhere. Because if you deduplicate, you only have to look at one set of code instead of two, so you're gonna gain time and you're gonna have less bugs. Developers are also working on improving how legible the settings pages are. Currently, the settings app is just some kind of empty box where it will read the list of config modules and sort them and display the various settings page but the settings page itself decides which buttons it shows, where it shows them. And so since the, the basic system settings app generally adds some buttons at the bottom to apply changes or stuff like that, if the configuration page also adds some buttons at the bottom of the page, you end up with a double stack of buttons, one on top of each other, and it doesn't look too good. So they're gonna revamp all of this and make sure that the modules can now declare the components that they need and these components will now be drawn by the system settings themselves in the header of the page instead of at the bottom, which will look simpler, it will be less intimidating, it will look more organized, and judging from the screenshots, it's a small change, but it really does make a difference. Another big change is to SDDM, which is the login screen that KDE uses. It started getting a lot of development work again from KDE uh, developers, and it just got a new release, the first one in two and a half years. So it was basically, let's not say unmaintained, but not really maintained either. And so since most of the development is now done by people from KDE, the project is being moved under the KDE umbrella and will use KDE technologies. Now, other things for Plasma 6 include improved performance when using hybrid graphics with a dedicated NVIDIA GPU. And they're also working, uh, it's work in progress, but they're also working on delivering what they call a massive performance improvement for Intel GPU users. So they must have found a way to optimize the way the compositor and the toolkits use uh, your GPU to render things which is really cool. They'll give more details next week, so you'll have to tune back to the podcast next week to know what they were talking about, because we don't know yet. They will also use uh, the scaling from the Qt toolkit in X11 for Plasma 6, which means scaling will work better on X11 and won't just be excellent on Wayland and middling at best on X11. Although support won't be as good still on X11 because X11 does not support mixed DPI, multi-monitor setups. 
So you can't on X11 have one 1080p monitor at 100% scaling and one, let's say, 1440p monitor at 125% uh, scaling. X11 does not support that. So if you do have that as a use case, you need to use Wayland. X11 will never support it. Now, in terms of UI changes and features, there are a few other small things. Uh, first, the welcome center that they added in 5.27 will now have an option for distributions to display it in a live USB environment. So when you're trying to install the distro. And they're going to have the ability to create their own page showcasing their distro with a button to launch the installer of the distribution, which is really nice because that welcome tour is good once you have installed the desktop, but it would also be very good to present the desktop to live USB users so they understand what this thing does and how it's going to work. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, they also made sure that the web browser widget will show the site's fav icon in the panel by default. Dolphin will now have a right-click option when you click on removable media in the places sidebar. Uh, you will right-click that media and you'll have the option to open the partition manager to reformat or, or flash an ISO to a USB key, for, for example, without having to open the app yourself. And Dolphin will also automatically hide temporary and backup files uh, unless you actively choose to display hidden files. But by default, they won't be shown, which is good because they can clutter directories very fast. Now, unfortunately, there is no official exact release schedule or release date, but they say that the likeliest estimates would be in the middle of November for the first release of Plasma 6. That date is not official. It might be delayed further. It might happen sooner, although that's unlikely. But you can expect Plasma 6 around November unless something terrible happens or they can progress as fast as they want. So, of course, it all looks pretty awesome. I would personally really enjoy seeing a refresh of the Breeze theme and icons. I think it looks good in dark mode, but not that much in light mode. And I would like to see that. I pretty, I'm pretty sure it's not planned for the first release of Plasma 6, but I would like if they started like thinking about design concepts around this, because it's starting to look a bit dated, in my opinion. It was revamped, I think it was in 5.24 or 5.25, but it was a small revamp. They basically removed a few gradients here and there and a few like 3D things on the buttons, but it still does look very square and not very modern in my opinion. That's subjective, you can change it, but yeah, I think the default should be good. And for now, I don't feel like the Breeze team is really that good, but that's just my opinion. Now, of course, the GNOME world also moves pretty fast. Uh, they don't have that giant, big, complete revamp of, of GNOME 4 or GNOME 5 or whatever it would be on the horizon, but they're still moving forward uh, with LibAdvita, notably. So this week, the text editor, the GNOME text editor, uh, is now using LibAdvita's toolbar view component, which means that it's now adaptive, so you can resize it and use it on smaller screens or, or phones. The calendar app also makes use of newer LibAdvita widgets in the edit calendar page and in the main app itself and in its various pop-ups that ask you various to click various buttons. So all of this should look more coherent with other GNOME apps and it should also fit properly on all mobile devices, including smartphones. Uh, GNOME Web also moves to more LibAdvita widgets and now uses the Advita tab overview. So it's that little button you click in the header bar and it displays all your tabs in a grid uh, of thumbnails 
it looks really cool. I wish all other browsers had that. Uh, I also wish I could use GNOME Web, but it still does not run YouTube videos for me, so it's out of the question. But it still looks pretty good in terms of interface. I actually make my Firefox look like uh, GNOME Web because I think it integrates so well uh, with the rest of my GNOME desktop. Uh, GNOME Disks, which is one of the last core GNOME apps to not have moved to GDK4 and Libadvita yet, well, they're actually looking for help to complete the port and a UI refresh. And there's also GNOME Workbench, the sandbox app, which lets you play around with GNOME technologies with Libadvita components. And this now supports more elements that you can test, that you can add and build things with. Uh, Workbench is basically a tool to let you conceptualize applications, learn how Libadvita works, how GNOME technologies work. And so now they support way more elements in their library so you can play around with virtually all the components that you could use in your GNOME app. There's a new update to List, which is a very small, simple to-do list app. It's more like for groceries than for managing projects. Uh, it has new animations when you unfold a task. Uh, it has settings for backing up your data. And it also got some UI improvements. It's a GNOME 4 Libadvita app. Tube Converter got some user documentation in a new help menu, although I don't really know why that's needed for an app that's just used to download videos from a URL. And it will automatically select the downloads folder on your desktop as the default if you didn't set one yourself in the app. There's an update to Fosh, the mobile shell that's using GNOME technologies, and it can now run on the Pine tab too. There's an update to iPlan, the to-do list app, but this one could be used for project management. Uh, it has a new create project window, which lets you set up a bunch of things. It lets you drop tasks on each other by drag and drop to turn the task you just dropped into a subtask. And it has UI improvements as well. I need to try this one. It looks interesting. I just don't know if you can sync it uh, between desktops. So I need to take a look. For now, I use uh, either Todoist or Endeavor, but the Endeavor task manager isn't super practical uh, in terms of where it creates tasks. And Todoist is not open source, so I would like to replace it with something else. We also have an update to Denaro, the personal finance manager. It can now import existing data when you set up a new bank account in here. And there's also a new GNOME extension called Peak Top Bar on Full Screen, which, as its name implies, uh, lets you basically reveal the top bar when you're playing something full screen, for example, a game or watching a video full screen or running an application full screen, well, you can now put your, to your mouse cursor in the top edge of the screen and the top bar will automatically lower and show, just like what you would have on macOS. When you put an app in full screen mode, uh, you can hover your mouse over the top of the screen and the menu bar will drop down. Same thing here. So it's really cool to see most of these apps finally completing their transition to Libadvita or moving to newer Libadvita components uh, because while these won't necessarily provide a huge benefit for desktop users, they bring all these apps closer to being 100% usable on a Linux smartphone, which is something we kind of need if we want to get out of the Android or iOS duopoly. So it's really cool and I love seeing this kind of progress. Now, less good news about Linux. Uh, there's a new malware doing the rounds and being widely installed onto less than well-protected Linux servers. Uh, the malware is codenamed Tsunami, and it's basically a way to brute force uh, your way into uh, the SSH session of a server. 
Uh, basically, it scans for externally exposed servers that use SSH. They just scan the open ports and they detect if the ports are open that will allow it to do its attack. And then it brute forces its way onto an SSH session on the server by, by using a dictionary of simple user IDs and passwords that are used as user accounts on the server and that you need to enter to connect uh, with SSH. Uh, this is just the base of the malware. It's also coupled with a lot of other sources of trouble for your servers. Uh, it's, it bundles in a Monero crypto miner. It bundles in something that lets you run DDoS attacks. It also tends to clean the logs to remove any evidence of the attack or of anything it installed. So it's really harder to, to find out that you've been infected. And it can also perform privilege escalation. So it can get access to root and it can install other things apart from itself. Uh, it's relatively easy to avoid being infected uh, when you set up SSH correctly, when you use uncommon names and passwords, when you configure a firewall. But a lot of servers do not do that. And so, well, they can be accessed relatively easily by this kind of malware. And ironically, the code for this malware is open source, which also makes it more widely used than other crappy stuff of, of the same register. So, yeah. Basically, check up on your servers, just make sure that your SSH is well configured, that it's not accessible from anywhere and by anyone, and that not like ports that you don't need to be open are well closed. Just make sure that everything is in order, basically. Now, we have good news for the EU and its citizens, but that will probably apply to the rest of the world as well. Uh, the European Union has approved new rules for right to repair and they will now change how batteries are handled in electronic devices. All portable batteries sold in the EU inside of electronic devices will now have to be removable and replaceable by the end user. And recycling of said batteries will also be mandatory with higher collection targets and higher material recovery and higher use targets for recycled materials. So basically the goal is to create a more sustainable battery production chain, make sure that those lithium batteries are not just dropped into a landfill and polluting the soils, uh, making sure that they're reused and recycled as much as possible. And to help with that, and not just throw away with a device when its battery is dead, well, it just needs manufacturers to let users replace the batteries themselves, or at least make it uh, easy enough so that any repair shop can do it for you. So this means that all manufacturers of laptops and smartphones and tablets and other battery-powered electronic devices, they will have to let users replace the batteries in their devices themselves. And they will have to let them remove those batteries easily. And this all starts in 2027. So it's still a ways off, but it's not that far off. And of course, as always, as with the EU, I would be surprised if uh, they were precise in their wording. Uh, manufacturers might still consider that the battery is removable if it's glued with 10 kilos of glue. Uh, you can still open the device and remove it. It's just super tedious and you might rupture the battery and, and set it on fire, but you can still remove it. Yeah, sure. Uh, or, or for example, Apple might argue that with its repair program that you need to order like 50 kilograms of repair equipment, even if you don't need it. Uh, to just change a battery and then send this equipment back. And if they don't receive it all, you'll charge like $2,000. Uh, 
They could argue that, hey, you know that? You know what? With that, our batteries are totally replaceable. There, there are guides online. You can do it. So, of course, we'll have to wait and see how companies implement these rules, how the EU phrase them, what are going to be the means to enforce those rules. Uh, and you would think most people would be happy with this, right? Uh, having more control over your device and not having to pay manufacturers completely insane sums of money after two or three years to replace a battery. Uh, or having to go to shady, weird shops that will do a botched job because it's so hard to actually do it correctly. You, you'd think people would be happy about that, but no, of course not. Uh, some Apple users seem very unhappy with this one because they think it's ridiculous that you might want to change your battery yourself. They say it will compromise the design of the iPhone or the iPad in the future, it will make it bulkier, and so it stifles innovation, and it's bad. And, of course, this way of thinking has no factual standing, it's completely stupid, because you could make the exact same iPhone design as today, or the same iPhone design as tomorrow, with having a few screws to unscrew, and then having access to the battery, which would be just clipped in instead of being glued. This will not add any thickness or any weight to your device. It's just that Apple chose not to do it because they don't want people to open their devices. And most other Android manufacturers don't do it either. It's very rare these days that you can pop off the back of your phone and remove the battery. On most high-end or, or, or flagship devices, you can't do that. But you could. You don't have to compromise the design of the phone to make that happen. It's totally doable. And sure, yeah, let's keep paying manufacturers like completely absurd sums of money so they're the only ones who can replace the batteries and they're going to charge you five times the normal cost and you can't even order the parts online or they're not even supported by the OS once you install them. Why would you want to live in this world? Like, come on, when there's a good regulation, you need to accept it as good regulation. Let's not fight every new law that appears just because, oh no, it's government trying to take away the rights for free market. Come on, that's, that's ridiculous. Now, in terms of open source, uh, you know that we don't necessarily have a fully integrated productivity suite, like the Microsoft Office suite, which has all the productivity apps, plus Outlook, and a few other things. And Thunderbird and LibreOffice have kind of agreed upon uh, trying to integrate both their software together better. So they asked the community uh, on Mastodon and other platforms to give them a few ideas on how to better integrate Thunderbird with LibreOffice to build, well, this kind of well-integrated productivity suite uh, that could be a strong competitor to Microsoft Office, for example. So the top five ideas that they picked are first to integrate a Thunderbird launcher icon in the LibreOffice dashboard. So basically you could open LibreOffice and open Thunderbird at the same time or directly from the app instead of having to go to your menu. That's a small change, not super necessary in my opinion. There would also uh, be the ability to let users link documents to calendar events or tasks and also to create calendar events and tasks straight from LibreOffice into Thunderbird. And they're also mentioning a simpler workflow to, from LibreOffice, export a document to PDF and then to send it via email with Thunderbird without ever leaving uh, LibreOffice, which would be smoother and easier to do. They also want to unify keyboard shortcuts to style the text uh, between LibreOffice and Thunderbird, which would make sense to have like the same key combos to create a header, to make something bold or whatever. 
and also the ability to insert uh, a Thunderbird contact into a LibreOffice document by just mentioning them, uh, for example, by using the at symbol. Now, Thunderbird has set up a meta issue to track all these changes and all these integrations. But of course, for now, they're just ideas. Uh, we'll need people that either work on LibreOffice or work on Thunderbird to pick up these issues, start working on them and implement them. So it might happen soon if there's a lot of people interested in it, or it might not happen at all if no one cares and no one wants to work on that. Especially since probably Thunderbird and LibreOffice are not extremely easy projects to get started with. Uh, they're pretty old, they have a lot of legacy and history in their code, and they're also pretty complex and pretty big, like they have a lot of stuff going on. So contributors that are already established in the LibreOffice or Thunderbird community might find it easier to work on that, but newer contributors might find it a lot harder to get started with these programs. Now, of course, we can't have one of these episodes without talking about uh, uh, how unethical, unethically, let's say, AI is being used. And this time it's by Adobe. Uh, Adobe stock users, uh, so the, they're basically the people who upload uh, photos and illustrations to, the, to Adobe's stock photo platform, they're starting to be annoyed uh, at the company's use of their creations of stock photos and illustrations to train their own AI art generator, which is called Firefly. And legally, they don't have a leg to stand on because they signed the terms of service. This clearly states that they agree to that when using uh, Adobe Stock and uploading stuff there. But ethically, it's another matter, uh, especially when you compound that with the fact that Adobe has a virtual monopoly on graphics design tools, that they implement their stock photo platform in these design tools. So it's not like people contributing content to it could just start moving to something else whenever they want to. They would lose a lot of money. But what's even more ironic is that the company says it wants to do ethical AI, which is really not the case right now. And including these tools is a weird thing because as AR art generators get better, some artists will simply not be needed anymore uh, to create those stock illustrations or stock photos. Uh, when your AI art generator is good enough to generate a picture of, uh, I don't know, a, a tech support employee uh, laughing in front of their computer or or a businessman holding a laptop and a phone. Once this can be created on the fly, you don't need uh, the people who take those pictures because the added value is not in the picture itself, it's in it what it represents. And if it's like modeled and replicated correctly by the AR generator, you don't need someone with a DSLR and a model in a suit being photographed. So obviously these works will start disappearing in certain areas. And this means that Adobe is using these artists' works to replace some of them in the future. And Adobe said they have plans to compensate creators of stock photos that, 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 that had their creations used to train Firefly. But they will only do it once Firefly is out of beta, and there's no conceivable way that creators will be paid in the same way as if someone actually bought the rights to their stock photos and creations. It's not just like, oh yeah, we used your photo, so we're gonna give you, uh, I don't know, uh, a few cents uh, for one-time payment, and that's it. But if this AI art generator was not trained on their content, it would be less good, so people would not use it, would not buy what it creates, and so the artist that created original works would have their works being bought uh, by many more people. So you can't compensate them for the business that they're gonna lose, which 
Yeah, it kind of sucks. And it wouldn't make financial sense for Adobe to pay them the same way. Like, let's say, okay, your image was trained, uh, was used to train our model. Uh, our model generated something that is very close to your image. So you're going to get uh, 1% of, uh, of the sale of the AI uh, generated image. Because you would have to do that for every image that's closely related and it's just not manageable financially. You can't do it. So yeah, basically yet another example of a company rushing to produce something with AI features and not thinking about how your AI will actually work in the future, what it will be trained on, because once no one creates stock photos because no one buys stock photos anymore, people just buy stock AI art, then your model will basically not evolve anymore and you won't be able to train it on anything else apart from other AI art and you're going to start to enter a weird bubble where things are going to start looking worse and not better. Okay, and now let's finish this with the gaming news. So if you're a fan of old school Diablo, uh, you might enjoy using Devolution X, which is a way to run Diablo 1 and its Hellfire extension on current modern systems with an open source engine called, well, Devolution X. It just got a new release and it now supports floating damage numbers. When you multiple click on all these enemies, you're going to see the big DPS go faster. Uh, you're also going to have an option to auto pick up oils that you can apply to, to your weapons in Diablo. Uh, quest item drops uh, are now based on the game's difficulty. All the quests are now playable in multiplayer as well. Uh, there's access to PvP air arenas and the graphics and lightning engine have been updated as well. And of course, the engine still has support for gamepads, for multiplayer, for high FPS, for custom resolutions, for custom aspect ratios, a lot of cool stuff. So it's a really good way to play Diablo these days. It's in line with the likes of Open Morrowind and other third-party engines. And the long list of emulation-related tools on the Steam Deck gets even bigger uh, with Retro Deck, which got a new beta, version 0.7.0b for beta, and they now have a new controller layout that lets them unify the hotkeys for all the emulators that can have their hotkeys configured. So basically, once you set up your controller layout for one emulator, you won't have to redo it for all of them. Uh, they made modding easier as well with a new system for the layout that is more legible so you know where to place the files you need for your mods. It integrates with Emulation Station, which gives it an easy, very usable and nice looking GUI. And it ships with the latest RetroArch emulation cores, the latest standalone emulators, and it also adds Wii U support using CMU and experimental support for multiple users, which presumably might be able to have different games uh, uploaded or different save states and stuff like that. So it looks like a great way to set up emulation on your Steam Deck or on any SteamOS or Holo ISO device like the Steam console, well, I'm gonna call it a console, but it's way bigger than a console, but it's still the same purpose as a console. So yeah, I, I, you, can, uh, you can tune in to my YouTube channel uh, next week. I'll have a video about that exact topic. So this will conclude this podcast, everyone. Thank you all for listening. As always, you'll find all the links uh, to the articles I use to make this show in the show notes. And as always, if you want me to be able to keep making this show, don't hesitate to support it. All the links for that are in the show notes as well. So thank you all for listening. And as always, I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.